0: You're listening to why we do what we do all right this is abraham and this is shane and welcome to why we do what we do because that's what this is if that's the two of us
1: what is what's ryan's phrase your favorite consumable psychology podcast Something like that, that, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> and then pow, 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 right? The three fists. Yep, pow, pow, pow.
0: <laughs> or pa, pa, pa. Pa, pa, pa. Whatever it is. No, I'm sure it's supposed to be pow. I was th- I was thinking about the, there's a fruit called papa that it'd be funny to do that as a pun. I guess I don't know. I love puns <laughs> and I'm not very good at them. I try to be. I mostly love them because how ridiculous they are. Anyway, so <laughs> right? let's get started on what we're talking about. I think. How you doing, man?
1: I'm I'm good, man. How are you?
0: I'm all right. You're just all right. Yeah, It's just a lot in life. There's, there's a lot in life to go on. Yeah? yeah. What's
1: going on? You want to talk about it?
0: <laughs> Maybe later. It's okay. <laughs> but what okay. I know is that I whatever it is I'm dealing with, I'm probably not going to choose to use homeopathy to deal with it. Yeah. No, I don't see. I don't see why you would. <laughs> <laughs> so today, we're talking about using homeopathy as treatment for mental health. So mm. I want to be really careful about how we open this. And it's important to begin with defining mental health and giving some background on that and defining homeopathy and giving some background on that. And actually, once we've done those two things, there will be not that much left that will need to be clarified to understand how homeopathy factors into treatment for mental health because it'll it'll be it'll become abundantly clear if you don't already know what the answer is <laughs> I'm yeah I'm excited I'm excited to dig into
1: this cuz um I think that there seems to be a lot of people that go to that that think they know what this is and maybe they think they're thinking it's something else and we're going to dig into that a little bit and, right? you know cuz cuz my understanding of this was before before getting into this my understanding of it was what the other thing is, <laughs> like I was right. like, oh, that's what it's. So we're gonna dig into like exactly what what all that is when we get into the background on homeopathy.
0: Yeah, this has been something that I've sort of been exposed to more and more, and definitely had a very different understanding of it the first time that I was introduced to this concept. So let's let's begin with a background on just describing mental health, and we've talked about various aspects of this and several capacities on this show before. And I do have on the docket at some point to cover how one goes about diagnosing mental health disorders and what that is. But very briefly, defining mental health is, is pretty difficult because there's a lot of facets to this and it's treated differently in different cultures around the world. But for sort of broad strokes purposes, a mental health disorder is any condition or context from which mood, thinking, and behavior become consistently maladaptive or moving away from the direction of a valued, quality-driven life. And this is often characterized by a lack of independence, especially with respect to self-management, to the point sometimes of being potentially self-destructive.
1: That is uh, a lot of terminology to not really describe anything, (laughs) right? (laughs) if you really think about it. You could just say it's, it's bad stuff. It's bad stuff. I mean, and I think that everybody's coming across like, you know, I everybody experiences mental health as a verbal community. I think that we come across some, you know, levels of this varying levels, varying contexts in which we deal with stuff. And, you know, it, there's a difference between like having a bad day versus like having struggles with mental health. And I think that's important right. to recognize too. Like just because your circumstances are terrible doesn't mean that you have bad mental health. Um, right. We're talking about a little bit more in depth, a little bit more um, on the extreme end of of these situations.
0: Yeah. And then specifically, you know, in the American diagnostic system, it does have to be that there's, for most diagnoses, at least many diagnoses, there is a criteria that it persists for a certain amount of time or recurs over a certain cycle of time. And so that's why I included in this description of it as being consistently maladaptive or moving away from one, like a value-directed sort of life. And there is a lot of sort of terms in there and and. I guess implications of that, but the really the point is to have that sort of broad stroke of this is more or less what we're meaning when we say, or when we're talking about um, mental health disorders. And examples of this, again, sort of broad categories, include things such as anxiety disorders, personality disorders, mood disorders, and then this also does include some of those biological conditions that results in learning and communication disabilities. And that can be thing like autism and down syndrome and fetal alcohol syndrome, things like that, where you have, mm-hmm. there is some specific biological damage or, um, malformation or change that happens that therefore subsequently affects the, the individual.
1: Yeah. And I think, and I, th- And I would say too, like when, when you mentioned like things like anxiety disorders, personality disorders, mood disorders, like there's a pretty standard diagnostic criteria for each of those. And when we get into diagnostics later, that's not today, but in the other episode, you will kind of dig into what that looks like, but it's still. You, there's still, it still looks different for every person, right? So if you and I have an anxiety disorder, it's going to look different. It's going to, it's going to, there's going to be different behavioral symptoms. There's going to be different context in which that occur. And, um, and I think that's kind of why people struggle with defining mental health is because an anxiety disorder for you looks different than for me than for the next person.
0: Yeah, that's a very important point. Great, great point,
1: Shane. Hey, Hey, anytime. So, how most of these things are treated it actually depends in part on uh, the ideology of the condition or where it comes from, um, the symptoms of the condition, the severity of the condition, and existing body of knowledge about how to treat the condition. So psychology is a fairly new field of study and mental health studies have really kind of taken off over the last few years, I would say, but there's still a lot we don't understand about it. And the evolution, like the the treatments have actually evolved over the last, even I would say the last 10 years, let alone the last 20, 30 or 40. I mean, we talk about shock, we talked about shock therapy, you know, shock treatment and lobotomies and lobotomies. in one of our episodes, we talked about all these things, right, that were used to treat mental health conditions. And in the state of mental health treatment looks very different today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, because people are different, contexts are different, conditions are different, the treatments tend to be developed in a, as generally as possible, or to be as general as possible. And again, that's, th- that, that's done on purpose, because the idea is that you develop a treatment that can help as many people as possible. So, you try and develop some sort of strategy that's going to help the most amount of people that fit the most amount of common I guess, symptoms or factors inside of a diagnosis. And and what you, what you can obviously imply from that is that it's going to work better for some people than others. It's uh, not always going to work the same for the people who even have the same type of symptoms if they have a different etiologies or different contexts in which they're experiencing their mental health disorder. And so, people really do try and apply these Um, these treatment packages to be as general as possible. And then they also have to be as specific as necessary for the individual. So, you have this sort of conundrum, both in medicine, because this is true for medicine as well, and inside of mental health, where you have to have the broadest possible treatment that can be as individualized as it needs to be. And so, it's got to have that flexibility of being both general, um, it's got to be broad, but also precise. And that's sort of described sort of generally as having precision, scope, and depth, referring to how how wide it can treat, how well it can be individualized, how thorough it is as an intervention, those sorts of things.
1: So one time I had a professor, we were talking about interventions for mental health, and she described it as a spectrum. So you had this big, long spectrum, and she said on one end, you have this small sliver of harmful interventions for that person, and on the other side, you have a small sliver of beneficial interventions for that person. And basically, as an interventionist, in this area of practice you you're throwing essentially darts at this spectrum and most of the time you're going to hit a benign intervention and some of the times you're going to hit something that's helpful so and i think that goes back to kind of like you describing like they're really broad general flexible interventions that have to really be pared down at something more individual yeah exactly
0: so that being said that we have these broad interventions but They really should be, and by should I mean that it is in everyone's best interest, that they are subjected to a high level of scientific scrutiny to determine what are the most effective components and composites, and often why they're the most effective components. Because if we can understand the process by which that intervention works, then it's more easily adapted to fit the needs of another individual's specific Situation or condition, so that it can have that level of precision afforded to it. So that's sort of the two angles that are often taken inside of mental health research: is to look both at how uh, whether it works and then how it works if it works. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and especially like coming from the skeptic side of this, when we get an intervention or they describe something new, we want to go back and see. Well, what does the literature say? What does the research say right. to support why this works? You know, and and I and I agree. Like. all treatments should be subjected to that scientific scrutiny because if the goal of science is to benefit humanity, why aren't we studying it more deeply?
0: Yeah, exactly. And there are some times that you'll have, someone might ask the question, well, if it's always based on things that we already know, then how do we ever learn anything new? And there is some amount of looking at in a, making some kind of observation about something and then trying to infer what would be a reasonable direction to go from that observation. However, that hypothesis or that that hunch or that inductive reasoning, whatever is going on there, the deductive or inductive, it is always going to, if it's if it's under the scientific umbrella, it's also going to have some kind of conceptual rationale that meets all the other things that we know about science as to why that's a good direction to go. Right. We wouldn't be as a scientist. I'm not going to look at someone who presents in a way that's very unique to my experience and doesn't seem to be represented very well in any literature that I can find. And then my first thought is, I wonder if it's unicorns. (laughs) <laughs> I bet it's unicorns. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, right, right. that doesn't make any sense right. as an as expert step because that doesn't fit inside of any kind of scientific understanding about how the world sort of works. Instead, it would be something like I wonder if there's something I just do not understand about. Maybe I'm, I'm taking too much from what this person is saying and I need to be looking at instead of what they're saying, why they're saying it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every yeah, because every every bit of information, every variable that you gather um, and every bit of observation you do just gives you another thread to pull as far as a line of inquiry. And so, um, Good you metaphor. know, you, yeah, that's I mean, that's exactly it. Like, you know, it's it's you just go back and you're like, OK, well, here's my new question. Now, this opens up to more questions. And here's my next question. And here's I mean, that's why we have implications for further research in all of our studies. It's like, hey, this is what this particular study says. But here are all the questions that we couldn't answer in, in this scope.
0: Yeah, I like that. And the example of the the unicorn that would be like the imaginary thread, that's the emperor's new clothes thread. <laughs> right. <on there. laughs>
1: so now that we've taken some time to like kind of discuss mental health and what that looks like and kind of where some of the treatment might come from and, and just give you some examples, we want to talk a little bit about homeopathy, which I think is going to be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. And I definitely want to avoid taking sort of a straw man approach because- It's easy to mischaracterize the position that homeopathy is taking, and I think the best way to understand this is to be very clear on representing homeopathy using their terms and their words and their descriptions of things to be as, I guess, I would say transparent or clear or as as honest to their position as possible and give them as much benefit benefit of the doubt as possible so that we can... We can describe this inside of the context of science and have it make the most amount of sense. And w- yeah. and once we've done that, then I think we can be critical. And
1: I think the other side too is in just as before we get into this section, recognizing that, you know, we come from a specific bent, we come from a specific bias. Like we recognize that if you are somebody who leans towards homeopathy and want to provide a little bit of feedback, we're more than happy to hear it and have these discussions with you. I, I would say at least I am. Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> uh, my bias is that of science and and where that leads me. So. Let's, exactly. As you sort of described as as we started this episode, there are some sort of understandings about homeopathy that are not actually there there may be assumptions that people have or or interpretations that people have that we should probably clear up before we even describe what homeopathy is. We can help by describing what homeopathy definitely is not, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably I think that's probably the best way to kind of rule out some things and then kind of orient everybody back to what it actually is, once we kind of rule like kind of like dispel some myths.
0: Cool. All right, so homeopathy is not naturopathy. Although some people even homeopaths will call homeopathy natural medicine, naturopathy is actually an alternative approach to evidence-based scientific medicine, and naturopathy proposes specifically that health problems can be treated without pharmacological drug interventions and instead use interventions that focus on altering one's diet and exercise. Um, They'll often propose things like massage, um, mindfulness, and meditation. It's really based on the idea of using variables found in the natural environment as healing variables. And we're not going to go into the role of naturopathy in terms of mental health or health or anything else here, just to say that it is distinct from homeopathy, because a lot of people might think, homeopathy means taking herbs and natural remedies and it's actually not what homeopathy is that would fall more into the category of naturopathy
1: and that's actually what i thought homeopathy was going into this
0: episode so i'm glad that we can just like right off the top debunk that myth yeah i believe that essential oils would not fall into the category of homeopathy i think the examples of like changing your diet or of the the whole idea of clean eating that wouldn't fall mm. into the, the realm of homeopathy. That's not to say that like homeopaths might work with naturopaths or with other alternative or what they like to say integrative types of medical approaches and, and include those things, but that's not actually part of homeopathy and what homeopathy is about, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Another thing too is it's not Ancient Eastern medicine, and um, I think this is really important to recognize too, is that many seem to be under the impression that homeopathy comes from ancient Eastern medical traditions of Chinese healing practices like acupuncture and whatnot, and, and, and those are very specific Eastern medicine practices. Those aren't necessarily – they don't fall in line with uh, homeopathic treatments or, again, kind of like you said, they, they may – uh, homeopaths may work in this realm. They may collaborate with some of these groups, but somebody who specifically practices homeopathy doesn't necessarily practice ancient Chinese medicine.
0: They're very two. They're two very separate things. And and it was not informed by ancient Chinese medicine either. In fact, it was created in Germany in the late 1700s. Whereas those ancient Chinese medicine practices that are often cited as containing ancient wisdom are thousands of years old. Uh, this is a couple hundred years old and comes from Germany. And not to say that Germany wouldn't necessarily have wisdom, but really just clarifying that there are, are those that, as you said specifically, might be under the impression it comes from that like ancient Chinese wisdom. It just doesn't. It comes from ni- 1700, late 1700s, early 1800s Germany. And specifically, a man named Samuel Hahnemann. And I'm not sure how to say that with a German accent, or that I should try. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Hahnemann? Yeah,
1: oh. like was it it's supposed to be more guttural right I and mean, that's uh, the the you know german language is very like
0: intense like samuel so, and i don't know that, yeah, that sounds, let's just call him sam that's dr. Sam, completely incorrect to me dr <laughs> sam there you go i like it <laughs> so so
1: i think and that's and that's the thing kind of going back like we talked about that that uh eastern medicine like this comes from western medicine this guy studied right. western medicine so his perspective comes from a western medicine training
0: yes exactly now Homeopathy has essentially three major principles, and they are like cures like dilution and succussion. Okay, those those are the those the three things. So let's we'll dive into each one of those more specifically.
1: So uh, the first major principle we were going to talk about is like cures like, or similia similibus curenter. And uh, essentially, the term homeopathy comes from the Greek homo, which means similar, and pathos, which means suffering. So similar suffering is kind of the overall the overarching theme of homeopathy, right? So so, and we're going to give a couple examples to kind of express that a little bit more. But um, you know, the idea is that um, similar things with similar makeup or things with similar molecules will help to cure ailments in the human body with some kind of exposure. Is that that kind of the gist of it
0: a little bit? I mean, yeah, generally the idea that the the symptoms caused by one particular chemical or substance, if they are similar to the symptoms that are experienced by whatever disease or problem that someone has, then, then those things would go together to cure one another. And an example of this is that onions make your eyes water when you cut them for most people. And so, people who have allergies in which their eyes water would take some onion thing, because onion makes eyes water, allergies make eyes water, Therefore, onion treats allergies. That's sort of the rationale there is these things look the same, so they go together. Another okay. one is if you're having trouble sleeping, then they may argue that you're really stimulated. And so to help you sleep, that you should take a stimulant, like caffeine or coffee. Or okay. sort of generally speaking, if you have been poisoned, then you should take some more of that poison. Okay. Okay. We'll just go ahead and be clear right now that there is no evidence to suggest that like cures like, or that any of these things are accurate. That is just one of the foundational principles of this approach.
1: So basically, if something makes you feel a certain way, take more of that thing to make you not feel that way,
0: or something that will make you that would normally make you feel that way, and then that should tip it Cure back you. in the correct direction of balance. More of the okay. same makes you do the opposite thing. I think. Okay.
1: So. so that's so that's the first major principle. Like cures like. Okay? Okay. All right. So the second one is dilution. Okay? And so this is something that, um, as I understand it, that a lot of homeopaths get really upset about and frustrated about because... People seem to accuse them of only using dilution, and there seems to be more to this, right? So the idea is that we're going to include the preferred way of talking about this in this discussion so that we can give you a clear picture of what dilution it looks like according to homeopathy specifically. Right. Okay, and we're not, We're going to try not to butcher this as much as
0: we can. <laughs> yeah. Okay? So dilution is something that most people will likely have heard about if they have some level of familiarity with homeopathy. And essentially, it works like this whatever the chosen substance is the hypothetically curative substance it's diluted in either a distilled water or some type of alcohol and it's intentionally diluted until there is little or none of the original substance left and i don't mean that to be to say like i'm i'm being hyperbolic there is quite literally little or none of it left okay So a common dilution ratio is called 30 C. I've also seen 6 C is a really common one. And then there's as many as 200 C. But what that means is there's a drop of whatever that substance is, a drop, and it's added to a container of 100 drops of either distilled water or alcohol, whatever it is. And then that container is shaken or tapped or in some way agitated. And then a drop of that diluted substance is added to another container of 100 drops and so on. And if it's the 30C, then it's done 30 times, okay? And as long as the container is shaken every time that it's diluted, that's a very important part. That's one of the things that people seem to uh, miss when they describe this. And so the final ratio you get when you have done this 30 times is a ratio of one drop or one molecule... Of that original substance to 100 million, 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 million.
1: Th- that's so that's a, a lot of millions. That's a lot
0: of millions. Uh, I actually I had to look this up to see what is a mil- a one with 60 zeros after it. Because, you know, you have million and billion and trillion and all that. It is yeah. called a novum decilium. Novum okay. decilium. That is that is a one with 60 zeros after it.
1: That's that's a, that's an intense number. Yeah. That's a lot. I don't know that I don't know that I knew that number existed. The lot the highest number I knew before infinity was a googleplex.
0: Yeah, a googleplex is higher than a um, a novum decillion, but a novum okay. decillion is a very high number. So anyway, a an example that I've seen of this. If you were to mix one aspirin into all of the oceans on the planet, so you put one in like the Pacific Ocean and then you shake it a whole bunch or you stir it a whole bunch probably is a lot easier to do than shaking the ocean and you, you mix it around until that one aspirin is diluted across the entire ocean, that would still be like a 100,000 times more aspirin to water ratio than if you diluted it as much as they're diluting it here. Hmm. I'll put it another way. Diluting it this 30 times, that one to novum decilion ratio, is the equivalent of one molecule of that substance dropped into a sphere of water 93 million miles across, and to give you a little perspective, uh, oh, and then if you were using the metric system, that's about 150 million kilometers. This is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So a ball of water that is that fills the space between the Earth and the Sun and then one molecule of that substance going into that ball of water. The sphere incidentally of water would be substantially larger than our sun is. It would be huge. So that,
1: that's so this is a this is a scope that I feel like you cannot even fath- really fathom. Like even with that comparison, we cannot begin to conceptualize that in any real way.
0: Yeah, I mean you you have to understand that if if one molecule is in a a, a thing that big, the the molecule is basically not there. And and I don't know. It's, it's essentially gone. Anyway, there are some homeopathic remedies that uh, recommend a dilution ratio of 200C, so rather than that 30C. And the way you can maybe wrap your head around this, or try to at least, is this would be one molecule of the curative substance, of the original substance, in a sphere of water that had more water molecules in it than there are currently atoms in the known universe. Which is to say, that it is so diluted that the molecule is gone because there aren't enough water molecules for it to still be there.
1: I feel like this is starting to give me an existential crisis. <laughs> Sorry, Jane. <laughs> like, I'm like yeah, okay, so so one molecule in 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 a in a sphere yeah. with more a sphere water of water molecules in it. Yeah. A sphere of water uh with more water molecules in it than there are atoms in the known universe. Like yes. what like what what is this even? Like I just go back to that. It's like what why are we even here?
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a big that's a big ratio right there. That's a pretty intense ratio. I mean, there like I said, if you if you took like one molecule off of an atom, I mean, a uh, one molecule off of an aspirin, not an atom. <laughs> off of an aspirin and you put it in the ocean and then stirred it around for 5 years, that would still be a like 100 trillion times more powerful or more present in that water than, than if you were to do that 200c dilution. I feel like it's a lot of work. It does seem like a lot of work. Anyway, the hypothesis here is that the more diluted it becomes, the stronger the medicine becomes because the water remembers the original substance. So you're like spreading that memory around specifically through the shaking process I talked about. Because remember, every time you dilute it, you have to shake it so that it agitates the water and it it's supposed to remember it. So water apparently now has a memory of some kind.
1: Right. In, in everything that I've read about, that indicates that that's not the case Yeah. so far.
0: Um, well, I mean, it'd be like if you were to, let's say you're someone who enjoys drinking and Hey, at the time we're recording this, it's currently St. Patrick's day. So happy St. Patrick's day. (laughs) And we also just recently released an episode on alcohol. So let's Uh say that if this hypothesis worked, then you should take, you could take something like a teaspoon of, or actually a drop, we'll just say a drop of like vodka and, put it in a swimming pool and mix it all around and then drink a like shot of that swimming pool would now be much more powerful because it remembers that alcohol that's in it. And if you think this will work, please try it and let me know. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah, think- give us, Yeah, especially today. Yeah. <laughs> Most people understand that when you water down alcohol, it becomes less potent, unsurprisingly. Right. All right. Final step in this is called succussion. And as we've already been describing, but again, I had to bring it up a lot because the homeopaths insist that I do. Uh, This is the process in which the container with the diluted molecule and its diluted substance. So for example, you had a drop of whatever the substance is that you're supposed to be doing. Let's just say onion in this case, a drop of onion mash in (laughs) in distilled water. And then you you beat that container usually against something elastic or leather. So you were doing that sort of shaking, beating sort of action that's supposed to mix those substances and and agitate the water.
1: Okay. So why leather?
0: I don't know. Okay. I think it's supposed to maybe have just the right amount of bounce to it. I'm unclear.
1: Okay, yeah, maybe to prevent it from breaking, I guess, maybe, the, maybe if they're be. using a glass, if go. they're using a glass thing, I don't, know. I don't know. All right, so the idea is that with succussion, this is what enables the water molecule to remember the original molecule. So essentially, uh, with succussion, you're agitating the solution, and the water molecules kind of take on the memory, right, or they like they suddenly remember and they take on the properties of that original substance
0: yeah something like that yeah something like that that's that's the way i understand it yeah and i mean it is accurate that Water will form structures around foreign molecules that are entered into them. This is essentially how Kool-Aid works, for example. Is <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of molecules of Kool-Aid that go into the water. But when you mix something into the water, or chocolate milk is kind of another similar example, or like coffee in water, when you mix coffee beans in the water, all of that mm-hmm. is a somewhat similar process where those molecules, they the the water molecules do form structures around those foreign chemicals. However, those structures are. Uh, usually, very temporary, and will last less than about a second, depending on the type of molecule. And also, I mean, if there's a lot of the molecule, then they'll last a lot longer. If there's one, it will not. And there are other foreign molecules that will make their way into water. There's just basic molecules that are floating around in the air. Uh, there are like gases in the room around you, even the moisture from your breath or that are things that are on the inside of the container in which it's shaking all of those little little foreign bodies that get into the water and there's probably a lot of them and so there is a question that's posed that is how does the water remember only the molecule you want it to remember and not all the other mo- what, all the other molecules that are foreign substances that are probably a lot more prevalent because there's a lot of them as, as opposed to being only one so just a question that was asked there
1: yeah, I think that's an important question because how smart is water to retain <laughs> only one? You know, I, I, I Very mean, smart. really, because I mean that's a that's, a, that's a legitimate. I would that would be my question is if we're gonna anthropomorphize water with memory, yeah, then it should also have discrimination or all these other things to prevent it from taking on memories of things it doesn't want. I don't know that that would be my perspective, but it doesn't seem to. They must be using smart water. Ah. Uh, <laughs> See? See, you got it. You can do puns and stuff like that. Yes. Dad jokes are really good. <laughs> All right. So let's do a quick summary of homeopathy. So we kind of talked about this real quick. And again, this is probably not exhaustive, but it's enough to give you a picture of what we're dealing with here. Right. Um, so the main thing is that it is not naturopathy, right? Right. It's not natural medicine. It's not Eastern medicine. It was actually created from a Western medicine doctor, Dr. Sam, Sam Samuel Hahnemann. Right. In the 1700s.
0: Yep. And it has essentially three main principles, which is this idea of like cures like, which is sort of the main principle of this, dilution, and with the dilution is succussion. Right. So, now that we understand that, let's talk about the science behind it. Yeah. So, I was curious. There are several what are called complementary and alternative medicine or integrative medicine journals that exist. There was one journal called um, Homeopathy. And in 2018, there was an article published by authors Dossett and Yeh. I think it's how you just say it. Y-E-H. Yeh yep, in, uh, yeah, And in this homeopathic journal. And they reported that five five 5.5% of people in the U.S. were using homeopathy to treat neurological and mental health disorders. So, we're bringing it back around to the fact that we were talking about mental health in this episode in case you forgot. <laughs> that's where we're at <laughs> there.
1: yeah and and that's interesting you know you I would assume that it was more considering some of the movements like uh, like some of the political movements like uh, against big Pharma and stuff like that you would think you would hear about it a little bit more but I, it's the vast it's still majority a lot of, of people.
0: people that use it tend to use it for medical conditions specifically around sort of ear nose and throat issues is what I found in in that article.
1: Okay. Okay. So it's not It's not like the people that we found they're using it are not using it for super serious things. Yes. Necessarily. Sometimes. Right. But sometimes. Yes. We're going to get into the, We'll probably talk about that later too. So there are also several studies involving hundreds of trials that have shown homeopathy remedies to be no better than a placebo. So um, there are a lot of studies out there with placebo effects for specific drugs. So it's interesting to see that the remedies don't really do any better than just a regular placebo that's out there.
0: Right. And that's that's really important to get into the idea of anecdotes which I'm gonna I'm gonna come back around to but there's this idea that for some people it works and what that what's really important to clarify here is that when it works it's not actually working it's not working it doesn't it can't work because it doesn't the, but there are several things that can happen the body heals over time. Um, Sometimes people are taking effective medicine in addition to the homeopathy, and uh, there is often that placebo effect, and then there can be any combination of any or all of those things. And some amount of healing
1: can actually take place or at least like a, like a feeling that things are getting better uh, when there's a good, warm doctor patient relationship. So we see that a lot in mental health where you have maybe a good therapeutic alliance with your, with your counselor. We hear that in behavior analysis, when you talk about like building rapport with your clients, the same kind of effect can occur in, in homeopathy, where if the doctor and the patient have a really good relationship, that might be part of that quote unquote healing factor.
0: Yeah, exactly. I've even seen specifically that some some people who are medical doctors take on the fact that part of the reason that people might be going to homeopaths is because they feel heard and they feel close to that person because they're they're telling them your concern is legitimate. I'm here for you. I will support you. I'm listening to you. Like I'm going to make you feel warm and comfortable and cared for. And by the way, here's my remedy and uh, for a nominal fee. And, uh, and so that, yeah, that there absolutely is this, uh, this relationship can be an important part and has hopefully, potentially, influenced the idea of sort of um, really training good bedside manner for people who are going into scientific medicine um, because of the utility of having that sort of relationship. Now, homeopaths will also talk about is sort of this approach to what they say is describing myths of the effectiveness of their their remedies that they create, this highly highly diluted substance, and that they, they always check these by what's called proving them. And what they do is they give these quote-unquote remedies to healthy individuals and then monitor them. And that was as much as I read about this. I wasn't sure if they were looking for them to get better or worse, but... They were apparently just giving these remedies to healthy people, and that was their proving system.
1: So, like, if somebody doesn't have a headache, you give them an aspirin to prove that it
0: cures headaches? Does that, that sound? That was sort of how I read it. I'm a little unclear. Okay. Yeah. That's. I, I apologize, homeopaths, if I said that wrong. Okay. Yeah. And if we did say it wrong, please clarify so that we can understand a little bit better. But that was how I read it. Okay. And another one that homeopaths will also take on is this idea of what they call a vital response, and this is supposed to be the explanation, or at least what I saw in a couple places for the explanation of how like is supposed to cure like, the like cures like hypothesis. And mm-hmm. the what they essentially describe here is that you will have some kind of thing that causes whatever problem you're having and that you, ha- your body has this initial vital response to that thing, and that what you do is then you introduce a small amount of that thing, and then your body goes the opposite direction and heals itself by being exposed to more of that thing. Okay. <laughs> so let's move on. <laughs> I
1: don't really... I just don't know what to say to that. I I I don't mean to be dismissive, but I just don't know. I just don't know what to say to it.
0: Yeah. Um it I I had a hard time understanding some of the things that I was hearing and reading in some of my research for this when they would say stuff like that and I I just had to think to myself, "Do you know what you're saying?" <laughs>
1: It's like um do you, do you ever see that post from the Flat Earth Society that says we have members all around the
0: globe? <laughs> like that's the, the that's the, the vibe I get. That's the greatest <laughs> thing. <laughs> I just I oh just can't man.
1: that's and that's the vibe I get. It's like I feel like that's that's not not I'm not comparing homie past the flat earthers, but I get that vibe where it's like the science is just not supportive and actually that's kind of what I wanted to dig into now is there's not really a lot of scientific evidence for this right there's no or really a conceptual reason for any of the stuff that we talked about as far as homeopathy uh, to actually work yeah it, it's it's actually pretty it seems pretty easy to disprove overall it's pretty low-hanging fruit to disprove um, and it's almost easy as proving that my body is inside out or that I can't actively breathe while underwater so I don't know. I just feel like there's not a lot of there's not a lot of strength in, in the evidence that they do provide
0: to say that, hey, this does work. One of the major benefits to this particular approach is kind of just what you said, that there are some pseudosciences and beliefs that people have that their major problem is that they're not falsifiable. You can't even subject them to scientific scrutiny to prove that they don't work, which is it's such a weak position to have that if you can't test it, it's almost not worth talking about it existing and and I understand that that's not always going to be true like there are certain concepts and like mathematical axioms and sort of theoretical physics principles that people have proposed that you haven't proved Einstein had several theories that they're still testing now like that they've been testing in the last couple of years to, to try and find support for and, and it's difficult for some of them but a generally speaking especially in things like medicine when you have these sort of things, if you can test them, then they're already at a higher caliber than those things that you can't even test. So this actually lends itself well to being tested. And so far the tests say at best you have a placebo. So that's, that's sort of just, that's where it's at. Like we can specifically compare this to placebo and see that it does just as well. Compare it to an active medical intervention and see that it does not do as well. And and those are things that we can we can do to test the effectiveness of this, and therefore also de- definitively show that there is no effectiveness to this. So, yeah, I mean, um, the American Medical Association, the United Kingdom's National Health Service, and Australia's National Health and Medical Research Council are all three bodies that have declared that there is no evidence at all that homeopathy is effective for tr- is effective treatment for any health condition, and I believe that. Even since that, uh, I think that was 2014 or 15 that, that that was updated. I think that more medical groups have joined that list. Um, I'm certainly aware that that list is growing, not shrinking.
1: Yeah, I would imagine so, especially with like, you know, better ways to measure the science and, and to really dig into this. The studies that are coming out, I would imagine, are are pretty consistent with the original findings from any study on this, is that it just doesn't work.
0: Yeah. And it's probably worth doing an entire episode on why people believe pseudoscience like this. But for the purpose of this episode, we can, we'll can we try and bring it back again to the, the relation of homeopathy to the treatment of mental health disorders.
1: Yeah, so I think it's pretty obvious that the research is going to this place where we're not demonstrating any sort of effect for any mental health condition using homeopathic techniques, right? We're not seeing any effect except for anything comparable to a placebo
0: effect, really. Yeah. I'm going to be a little bit glib and say that if homeopathy is essentially pretend magic water, that is, it is at best a placebo, as we've described in terms of the fact that you have a distilled water with nothing in it substance, then its effectiveness for mental health is going to be exactly that. It's going to be nothing, or it's going to be a placebo. And Some of the examples for claims of what homeopathy can treat, according to some books and articles that I read, included using homeopathy to treat anxiety, depression and withdrawal, insecurity, shyness and immaturity. (laughs) Immaturity?
1: (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) That's great. Some of the other things that it claims to treat would be like fears and phobia, schizophrenia, obsessional disorders, and, and even autism. Like Some people have noted that it helps with autism.
0: Yeah, there are specific doctors doctors. There are specific people who call themselves medical professionals who will prescribe homeopathic remedies for for children with autism. So, essentially, the idea is that whatever the the symptom of that disorder that you have or that uh, individual has is, the homeopath will want to use a substance, a heavily diluted and succussed substance, of course, that causes the same symptoms. So, if there is any particular substance that's supposed to cause, I don't know, like let's go with uh, an example of fear and phobia. So, if there's something that's supposed to make you feel more afraid of things or have you a a heightened sense of arousal to the world around you such that you might feel a little bit paranoid, the recommendation would be take more of that. Um, If you're someone who feels depressed, then the recommendation would be take more depressant uh, substances that have the property of causing more depressive symptoms
1: so this is a legitimate question
0: so bear with me okay i'll do my best so if
1: i if i am if i have if i'm claustrophobic and my fear is that i'm is being buried alive Mm -hmm. so the substance they would use would be soil (laughs) i don't honestly know (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I I'm not trying. I'm not even trying to be a jerk. I'm like, I'm legitimately trying to figure out, like, for phobias, for things that are like irrational fears, what would people, what substance would you use? You would use something that would elicit the response, right? That's that's or things that would elicit the symptoms. So the only thing I can think of is if I'm afraid to be buried alive, then it would be some kind of soil or
0: dirt. Well, I think that, and I might be wrong here, but my my guess would be that what they would look at is one of what you do when you're in a situation where you're experiencing claustrophobia or symptoms of that which is there might be like a hard time breathing like really labored breathing and so then my thought would be that the recommendation would be to take some kind of chemical that causes you to have labored breathing when you go into an area where you're claustrophobic okay
1: all right so (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying really hard not to (laughs) So wow. I, and I swear, like very like and honestly, too, I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be a jerk. I really do want to understand. Same. It. Like, I want to understand the perspective. Like, yeah, that's why we're digging into this, because like as scientists and as skeptics, we are going to be a little bit. I don't want to say dismissive, but I think that we are going to be a little bit skeptical and really dig into like, show me the proof, show me the evidence. That's where we're coming from with this perspective. But I really want to understand it. I just I can't I can't really wrap my head around it. Yeah. I mean, I can't find anything to like dig my teeth into.
0: Yeah. On it. Well and that's why I, I sort of just said or, or why why I, I was alluding to earlier that this is it's so easy to look at this and say I don't the the whole theor- the whole philosophy of this thing, it's as diluted as the substances that it pushes. Like I just <laughs> there seems it's to be It's at a two hundred C. Exactly. It is two hundred C diluted. It's I don't know, it's I, I want, I, I'm trying to like just as portray their position as clearly as possible and also just say, as you pointed out, the science just is like, n- n- no. It just, it's not good science. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It just doesn't like it doesn't work like that. And there, there's no reason that it would work like that. And when we test it, it doesn't work like that. And yeah, I don't know. And I think, well, and I think too, like if the
1: science is bad and if there's no evidence for it, but people are still kind of putting it out there as a treatment, there are some really serious ethical concerns with this particular thing, right? Like like we talk about like snake oil salesmen and stuff, and I'm not going to compare people who practice homeopathy to that level or that, like I'm not that disparaging, but let's, I mean, we can discuss a little bit about what kind of implications there are for putting out a therapy that's not effective and having people pay for a therapy that's not effective in treating things that are pretty serious, especially treating mental health, what that can get really serious.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's that's exactly I think the 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 point that I would want to make, or the 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 direction to, that I would want to take on this as well, is that the immediate response might be, "What's the harm? It's just taking some some distilled water that makes you feel good, if you believe that it's going to work." Well. There, as you mentioned, the specific concerns are that patients have a right to effective treatment for the mental health. Patients have a right to effective treatment. That is an ethical guideline that exists in many health f- uh, fields of, of health and well-being, and homeopathy is not an effective treatment. We've already described that. It is as effective as a placebo, and there is room for placebos in medicine to an extent, and this just is not effective treatment for serious problems, and even kind of like general day-to-day, which we'll get into in just a moment.
1: Yeah. And I think too, um, you know, it's really important to recognize that patients have a right to, have, to evidence-based interventions. So not just Effective treatment, but evidence-based, something that's researched, something that demonstrates some kind of benefit for whatever ailment they're suffering from, you know, and homeopathy doesn't have enough evidence or any evidence really to support treating really serious mental health concerns or treating any mental health concerns
0: at all. Yeah, so I went through and I was specifically in preparation for this episode looking at myths that homeopathic people, uh, homeopaths were trying to dispel certain myths about homeopathy and one of the myths that they tried to dispel was so interesting to me is the myth that anecdotes are not evidence and that anecdotes so there might be these an anecdote referring to the idea that there might be like this this one story about this one person who had a problem took a homeopathic remedy and got better right they had arthritis they took homeopathy they didn't have arthritis or they were dead and took up, and came back alive or something like that. Like that might be some kind of anecdote that they tell. Now, this might even be a real story of someone who's like, I had migraines, I took a homeopathic remedy, I didn't have migraines anymore. And they seem to be doing much better. But the problem with that is that anecdotes are by definition not evidence. The definition of anecdote is that it's not evidence. It is a, a, an instance in which this occurred it is not scientifically researched repeated effects. So evidence means that you have repeated measures of this effect that has been observed and verified. And an anecdote is a single one-off instance of this in which none of the relevant variables have been accounted for at all. So you can't say that anecdotes are evidence because they that's like saying that night is daytime, and it just, mm-hmm. it just is not. Up is down like... I weigh zero pounds, whatever, like (laughs) whatever you're going to say about it.
1: Yeah. It's the same, it's the same issue that people find in paranormal research. If you're looking at like extraterrestrial research or paranormal research, anybody that is in that realm tends to base a lot of their discussion or a lot of their support around anecdotal reports. And there's really not a lot of evidence to back up those anecdotal reports because most of the time they're experiential. They're one issue. There's not a lot of evidence behind it. So, you know, when you when you go to make extraordinary claims, you should have extraordinary evidence. And I feel like homeopathic treatment makes extraordinary claims without extraordinary evidence. Had any
0: evidence. Exactly. You know, I was actually going to share a story really quick. There is a, a really well-known skeptic whose name is James Randi, and he's like in his 90s or something now. He's at least in his 80s. He's he's quite old. And a few years ago, he did a TED Talk about homeopathy specifically. Maybe it was pseudoscience more generally, but he did talk about homeopathy. And he took this bottle of pills. And we didn't say this before, but homeopathy, we've been talking about the fact that it's diluted in water or alcohol. They will do it also in um, in these like tablets that you can take. Um, I don't know exactly what they use in those tablets. I would guess sugar, maybe but anyway what he did is he took this entire container of tablets for like sleep medicine and it was supposed to be something like 50 doses so and you're supposed to take one a, a night or one a week maybe so something like that and he did, he downed the entire bottle on stage <laughs> and then did the rest of his presentation. And he's wow. like, I should be dead by now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Dead or at least asleep. Essentially, he was making the point there's nothing in this besides, you know, whatever they stuffed the pill with, which is probably just sugar or something. And the the one concern that some people have raised is that even though it might not be effective as a homeopathic remedy – this is a market that – we haven't said this before, but it's unregulated. So you have no idea what's in those things. It could be anything. And mm-hmm. so it could actually be really dangerous to just down a whole bottle of whatever it is um, and and expect it to have no effect. Well, you can go on Amazon and buy SIBO caps. Right.
1: I mean, if that that says anything about how unregulated it is, you can literally go on Amazon and buy the capsules that that are fillable capsules. I just I googled it before we started talking to see if you could buy placebos on Amazon, and you absolutely can. Wow. So, yeah, so it's out there. It's like you said, it's unregulated, and and you don't know. Like they don't really know. I mean, when you go to like a convenience store and you see like those the vitamins, like those vitamin packs that you can buy, like the boosts and stuff like that, it's the same kind of thing. It's not regulated that well. You don't really know what's in that stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, actually there was it was funny that there was a study that came out a year or two ago that looked at it was like one particular brand of natural supplements and they they just pulled them off the shelves and opened them up and then tested what was inside the things that were in there. And it was I want to say 80% of the time, I think it was higher than that, but I'm going to say 80% of the time, it did not contain one single ingredient that was on the label for what it contained. Hmm. And what was also super interesting, so they did contain things like houseplants sometimes, but what was also super interesting about it was that some of the bottles contained things that were said that they were in other bottles that those bottles didn't contain. Wow. So it was, (laughs) I know, right? It was like, this one contains whatever this herb is, and then a different, wouldn't. Actually have any of that herb in that bottle, but it would be in another bottle that didn't say that it had that herb. And I'm like, if you guys are gonna use it, you may as well just put it in the place where you say you're putting it. Right like, at this point, it's like you're intentionally lying.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, or just you just don't care. You're just grabbing handfuls of pills and throwing them into a baggie and stapling it together yeah. and sending it off to 7-Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's important too, I think, when we're talking about any sort of medical treatment, that patients should be informed of the risks and benefits of an intervention. So they have to know, and that t- goes back to these idea of like informed consent, and people should really know what they're signing on for. So um, homeopathy makes wildly inaccurate claims about what their treatments can do to the exclusion of real information about real medicine. So basically what they say is they say we can do all these things and don't really talk about real medicine. They kind of actually maybe disparage real medicine a little bit to such a degree that they scare people away from those actual evidence-based or effective treatments that could possibly help them.
0: Yeah, they might say like, well, you could take aspirin for your headache if you want to poison your liver and die. <laughs> They're like, oh, I don't want to poison my liver and die. Um, and so they're not actually giving them information about what an alter uh, a, a, another type of medicine that would be effective is. And I'm not saying that that's what all of them do. I'm just saying that like that's not built into how they approach prescribing their remedies. No it's a little, bit, it's a little it seems a little bit dramatic. <laughs> or, <laughs> another ethical consideration is that interventions should be based on some kind of assessment. Uh, homeopathy, does not use any kind of standardized and evidence-based assessment that would inform the kind of homeopathic intervention that would be used. Again, it just goes back to this thing of like cures like. So if this thing has, if, if whatever problem you're experiencing has you look or feel like this, then I'm going to try and find another substance that has you look or feel like this. And that's sort of where that goes. And that is a problem because when you are doing medicine and interventions inside of any kind of field that has regulations and scrutiny and ethical considerations around how to provide effective treatment part of that involves doing an assessment to determine what that effective treatment would be yeah that makes sense
1: as as somebody who's a practitioner we do assessments a lot or i do assessments a lot so yeah definitely sure. worth definitely worth it. it tends to make things a little bit more effective overall <laughs> Definitely. That's all I'll say about that. Um, And also patients may actually choose this ineffective treatment to the exclusion of effective treatment. So what they might do is they might select something that isn't going to help them to their detriment. So they'll they'll select that actual ineffective treatment. They'll refuse to take an effective treatment because of these things like, oh, if you take an aspirin, your liver will die and stuff like that. When an aspirin might be all they really need to treat whatever their problem is.
0: Yeah. So, and again, this is getting to that point that it's not just harmless it's not just a harmless thing because it's pretend water. There actually are a lot of serious implications of this. And one of them is the fact that when people choose to do this, instead of seek real medical help for their, their condition, and even if it works as a placebo, and they they get some kind of effectiveness out of this because all they needed was a placebo, then there's still the consideration that they're pouring money into this industry that isn't effective. It's an industry that is fueled on these misconceptions and misconstrued ideas and non-evidence-based interventions um, for their really serious conditions a lot of the time. And so, even if for that one person individually that they don't necessarily contact harm because they don't get effective treatment or anything else, they're still pouring money into an industry that can cause harm in the long run.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, when we talk about harm, we're not just talking about mental health harm. We're also talking about economic harm. So if you're spending thousands of dollars on something that's really not effective, then that's, that impacts your socioeconomic status too. I mean, that does that, that puts a burden on, on the person who is receiving treatment. So I think it's important to recognize that is like, you know, going back to the idea of anecdotes, anecdotal evidence is not enough to support why somebody would do something that is ineffective. Like, just because it worked with one person doesn't mean that it works for everybody. And there's no evidence to suggest that what we're talking about here, as far as homeopathy has literally no effect on mental health.
0: So perfect. I mean, and I think that's, we're going to move into take homes to wrap it up, but that, I think that kind of is it. Like, I think you just said it that homeopathy is not an effective intervention for mental health. It does not cure autism. It does not cure anxiety disorders at best. What you're going to get is that placebo effect, but especially for those more profound disorders, that's nothing. And and don't waste your time and money on something like that when you could be out getting effective interventions, or at least trying to find an effective intervention. Find the one that works, because as we mentioned at the beginning, sometimes it's the, the interventions aren't going to work the same for everybody, and you'll just need to really find the tailored intervention that works best for, for you, or for your loved one, or for your friend, or whoever it is that this is for, that it you just need to, to, to find the thing that works. And if a placebo works, then that's fine, but preferably not a placebo that's fueling this industry.
1: Agreed. I can support that. Sweet.
0: Anything else we need to hit on for take-homes or anything else in here?
1: Nope. I think that's the main thing. I think I think that we covered all the things that we need to as far as homeopathy goes.
0: Great. Homeopathy, we tried to really give you a fair shake in terms of at least depicting you the way that you are. And if you are in that camp and would like to uh, try and defend yourself, then feel free to contact us and by all the means. Oh, one thing I wanted to say at the very beginning of this I almost completely forgot about. Um, we are now on a couple different platforms. We have been added to uh, tunein.com, so if you want to listen to us through there. Um, we are on Spotify pr- as fairly recently, and uh, we are a new service called Spreaker, so you can find us there. Um, we will also we should be available on smart speakers, including Sonos and Amazon's Alexa, and I think Google Home Pod thing, whatever that is, um, fairly soon. So, um, if you have access to those, you can you can hear us at any point. It'll play whatever our most recent episode is, or at least it's supposed to. Um, still, I'm testing all this out to make sure that it works the way it's supposed to for the smart speakers. Everything else is, is up and running the way that it's The way that it should. Um, If you have an Amazon Echo or yeah, an Echo, uh, then you can simply uh, ask it to enable the Spreaker skill, and then it'll play our podcast through that. If you want to go that route, and then if you want to support us, there's a whole bunch of ways to do that. Um, Just passing us on by word of mouth, leaving us a review. Rating us, joining us on Patreon. We'll, we're announcing, uh, hopefully very soon, the levels of Patreon that will be available. Um, all those are ways that you can support the show, and we really appreciate anything that you're willing to do uh, to help us uh, reach reach an audience of people who would benefit or would enjoy hearing our what we have to offer.
1: Sounds good. Yeah, and also to feedback i mean if there's something that we can do better if there's something that you think that you would like to hear more of let us know i mean we we we're more than happy to to you know interact with you and have a conversation with you and and really get some ideas you know generating from you especially as listeners who have followed us for some time now or if you're a first-time listener anything that you think that you know we can improve upon let us know we're more than happy to hear it
0: yeah we do have some listener mail but because this episode is as long as it is i'm gonna i'm gonna wait till we have a A little bit short of an episode and I'll include the listener mail there, but I don't want to make this one drag on too long. Sounds good. All right. So with that being said, let's go ahead and wrap this up. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com/slash You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at ww.dodcast WWD on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to wwwdpodcast.com.
0: Another echo. <laughs> another, another echo another echo another <laughs> right. echo